Hello, and welcome to Born to Dance, the podcast for Matthew Bourne's new adventures that explores and questions why dance moves, inspires, and excites us. My name is Paul Smethurst, resident artist for New Adventures and your host. Each week, I will be joined by members of our extended family to talk about their journey through dance and how it has impacted their lives. Upon researching today's guest, I was struck by how often paradoxes were used to describe his work as an acclaimed choreographer. Once described as the David Lynch of dance, he beautifully balances both the twisted and the magical, the surreal and the glamorous, and as his impressively versatile breadth of work attests, he does not box himself into one particular genre when creating and imagining magical worlds. His prolific choreographic career has spanned across ballet, physical theatre, opera, plays, film and television and he has worked at some of the world's most famous theatres with the brightest of stars. Yet, ultimately, he is inspired by people, and the human condition, with his pieces vibrantly celebrating performers of all ages, abilities, cultures, and experiences. And perhaps it is his background as a Portuguese man born in South Africa, dancing disco, Latin, and ballroom before training in contemporary dance and ballet, that has formed his creative viewpoint of celebrating diversity and exploring the beautiful spectrum of what it is to be human. We just need to escape all the insanity out there, he once said in an interview. But sometimes you need to live the pain. Arthur Pitter, (laughs) welcome to Born to Dance. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. It's so nice to have you with us. I chose that quote because I think there's something about it that encourages the validity of all human emotions. Yeah. And I think that really sums up your work and also what I know about you, you wow. know, as, as a friend and someone who I've worked with. Yes. Why do you think it's important to just like live, live in the pain, live in the, what, what is it a, about the full spectrum of humanity that really excites you or inspires you? I guess because the theater, you know, the stage is like a reflection for the audience. Mm. So I mean, if you're just constantly doing fluffy pink stuff, that might not reflect how everyone is feeling Mm. in the audience. So especially what we've all gone through recently, you know, I've heard a lot of people and promoters going, oh, we need, you know, people want something joyous. People need something to bring us back. And actually, no, I actually want to see something really painful and sad because Mm. (laughs) that's what we've all gone through in a way that's sort of part of the healing process when you see something on stage that reflects how you feel, that is part of connecting with something where you don't feel so alone with those feelings anymore. And you might see another character depict that and express that for you. And then, and that all helps you connect to yourself Mm. and connect to the performance. So I think it's a beautiful way to connect to the audience, but also to not be fearful of the the many themes that lie within us. Mm. Oh, and I think that that is one of the amazing powers of theatre in your work is is that people can watch it and there's an empathy that it, that you can relate to it. Yeah, I think it all depends. 
of course, what you're doing, but I think there's so many layers. So the moment the moment you have a human being standing on stage, that's already going to be uh, fully loaded with so much. Just that person, you know, let's just say that person's just standing there. There's already so much emotion going on because of what we carry within us. Mm. So when uh, when you find a narrative and when you find a good narrative that allows the full spectrum of, the, of that character to go through the full journey the full arc that's what draws me to to when i find a narrative that allows the character to really go there then i know that the audience will connect with that mm. do you know rather than just trying to keep it on one level we've dove straight into <laughs> big depressing big, <laughs> yeah. no 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 just like big um philosophical questions and we're, we're yeah. gonna just like boogie back a little bit okay and i'm gonna ask you this question yes when was the last time that you danced? <gasps> oh, like probably like a few days ago uh-huh. <laughs> in the kitchen, always. Yeah. yeah. Like you put in a bit of music on and you'll jig around. Yeah. But actually the last, yes, yeah, sorry, the last time I did dance was two days ago because I've been, I've been working on a, on a ITV series mm-hmm. called Tom Jones. So I was in the studio rehearsing and I was teaching the wonderful Hannah Waddingham a dance. So I was dancing. Oh. Yeah. And How exciting fun. and lovely. And to to be in person. And I guess because you've been, I know that you've been doing more television work. Is that something that you have always been interested in and done? Is there been a, is it been a fortuitous byproduct of the pandemic? Have you found that you've had more job offers in television, for example? Yeah, I'm always fascinated about what comes my way. I think maybe it started because I did The Pursuit of Love in 2020. And that came, that came by because of my friend, Freddie Fox, who said, oh, I need, we know we need a bit of help, you know, with a waltz. Will you come in and, you know, teach me and, and Lily some, some waltz? And then actually then I had a meeting with the director, with Emily Mortimer, and then she's like, oh, we need this and we need that. And then ended up being quite a lot. And, and I absolutely loved it. I had such a ball on that. And then I think off the back of that, then I've ended up doing another two period dramas which have been a little bit more historically accurate but just like a little bit of freedom to play with it so it's been really fascinating visiting like regency dance or 18th century dancers but to kind of have a little spin on it Mm. so so i don't you know it's very interesting i don't know how they've sort of come about but um i've just ended up doing them so it's been a lot of fun oh that has been so exciting and have that opportunity to, to be creative and it's a different you know film film is such a different experience because it's much quicker you know, it's like you have to get the show or you have to get it ready for that shot. So the the process is much faster and it's much more concentrated. And it's also um, fascinating because it's, it's a different choreographic technique because it's all about the edit. So you have mm. to create sort of opportunities mm. for the director and for the editor to cut in and out of. So you're thinking about it in like little bursts maybe or little like yeah, nuggets. Exactly. I try to make it continuous as one as long as possible so that they can shoot it as many times on the last shoot recently because there were so many people i think we had about 25 people in a dance so and it was very uh 18th century dancers so lots of circles and lots of shapes but because it was so difficult because they were dancing like on a slope on grass it was easier to stop and do each uh shape so we could get the shape really nice and neat and then shoot that bit and then stop and then do it that way mm. so there's different processes sometimes you know it's handheld and they get in and then they just and then you, you catch glimpses 
other times if you get that front on shot which i think is always the most satisfying for dance because it's almost like the stage then you can really get more accurate about how you want to achieve and, and create a nice and create you know the movement within the frame mm. and how did you prepare or or is this something that you've had to just teach yourself as you've gone along actually when i was a student i was a camera operator at the place at the place oh. theater so that was my student job would be to go to the place and to film all of the performances that were happening you mentioned the place there which is where you went to to study um mm. but i'm going to take us i'm going to take us even further back in okay. our time machine i know that you grew up in in south africa paint a picture for us what your first or earliest memory of dance was encountering dance so I think it must be, you know, when I was younger, for some reason, we were there were a lot of weddings going on. And they were always just like fantastic, exciting uh, events. This is Portuguese weddings, Port a Portuguese wedding in South Africa. So there's already quite a lot of cultural <laughs> extravagance going yeah. on there. What's a Portuguese wedding like? Very festive. I'd say quite over the top. A lot of money invested into it, you know, in terms of like there'll be a lot, especially back then you know there was a quite big weddings with a lot of food and a lot of guests and a so band theater. it was like theater exactly and lots of um traditions i remember like all the men they take the groom around and they sort of form a line and they light candles and they hold onto each other's shoulders and they they pretend to cry and they sell the they cut pieces of the groom's tie and then you give money you know for the for the bride and groom and they cut of his tie off wow. but then all the other men are sort of weeping to kind of show that he is poor and that you should help you know you should help them and the bride has to so when the groom goes up and gets the garter so it's all quite sexy he goes up her leg and gets the, the garter and they, and they dance on chairs then the bride takes her shoe off and then they pour champagne into her shoe and then the person who catches the garter or catches the bouquet, they have to drink the champagne out of the bride's shoe. I know, how bizarre. That is incredible. I know, I, I used to love it. I hope she's washed her feet, that bride. I know. Mm, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so my dance experience, so at these weddings, there'd be a lot of dancing going on. And when I was really, really um, young, I remember my, my second cousin, my mom's first cousin, Elizabeth, she was just a beautiful beautiful gorgeous woman they would play this song called mambo tambo's getting married which is an actually an african song mm -hmm. they would all dance in a circle and you know that thing where you dance in a circle and everybody and then someone goes in the center and they do their thing and you know so everybody has their moment but when she would go in and all the kids would be part of the circle so it's this lovely thing going on and everybody's basically doing an improvisation but she would lift her skirt quite high and do this kind of shunting with her with her with her legs you know and shunting forwards uh in these amazing like high heels i just remember these high heels and it was just like this fierce almost tribal very sexy movement and i was just completely um absorbed and i, I was quite fascinated because she's such an elegant woman very statuesque very very classy but when that came out it was so sort of tribal and, and raw and something else and that I and sort of sexually charged and I was sort of <laughs> totally fascinated and uh like obsessed with her I used to watch her a lot as a kid when we used to go like for lunches and stuff because just the way she moved fascinated me and do you think that came from her cultural backgrounds or was it the music that kind of you know almost like intoxicated her I think it was definitely the music because that's an well what's interesting it's a Portuguese wedding and they were playing this African song 
And at that time, I guess because our family immigrated to South Africa from Madeira Island, so I guess for a lot of them in the like in like the late sixties uh, into the seventies, so for them it was it was something that new for them as well that they were experiencing. So I guess there was this cross cultural sharing going on. And what I love hearing, just hearing you bring that to life so vividly, I've had the honor of working with you. I know from being in your work and watching your work that that ritual is something that you're really interested in mm-hmm. this idea of traditions and cultural yeah rituals and you're so detailed in your research and and that almost you're you're giving a nod to something that that feels very maybe important to you yeah i think i think rituals are very important i i'm a very kind of ritualistic person or a person of habit uh-huh. it's a way for people to connect and also it's part of a uh, cultural identity so i'm quite, i'm really fascinated about what people do and why why they do it and what informs these rituals and the need the need for them mm. and i th- and i think theater itself is a ritual and the th- the art of making a, a dance and then making a piece of theater is ritualistic itself how did you start your journey into dance i know that you followed your sister's footsteps into Latin American styles. Yeah. And then I'm very excited to talk about your um, world disco championship yes. time <laughs> and era. Were your sisters doing it and, and you they dragged you along or you wanted to go? Like, how did that kind of yeah, start? Yeah, it was all sort of, in a way, just all felt completely natural. I was totally obsessed with uh, John Travolta, completely obsessed, where I used to cut T-shirts, black T-shirts to show my arms and you know wet my hair and I couldn't it, it never stayed wet I don't know how he did it because <laughs> I didn't have any gel um to grease my hair because I just wanted to do grease lightning all the time and uh and, and Saturday Night Fever as well and then we got we got a, a leaflet through the post for Diana Moore's Dance World and my sisters were like oh we want to go and do Latin American so I was my sister's partner and then they were doing disco dancing lessons and we said oh we want to do the disc- the disco as well I started that that was like the the key into the ignition the first thing you learn is just to swing your hips for eight counts and then double hips and uh there was just something so satisfying about that we had a we had a wonderful teacher called Joan Manser who was just so fantastic with the children and very clear and then you started learning dances like the freak and the night walk and the hustle and the robot and so everything so it was just (laughs) just a great way to start to get the coordination in the body but also to feel free like I think it would have been a very different experience if I had started with ballet, because I think ballet is so much more, it's so technical and there's mm. so many, it's so, it's so much more rigid, especially if you're starting as a child, where actually disco or the freestyle was much freer. And I think it was just about moving and sort of finding a, finding a style. And you did end up getting into ballet and contemporary. But before mm. that, let's just touch on the disco, because <laughs> I found this amazing video that I'd never seen before of you as a young man with like glittery trousers yeah. and <laughs> living your best life. And you're, le- you're flexible. Your leg is like up Around against walls. your head. Yeah. 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 And you won the world disco championship. So, mm-hmm. so you, you obviously took it seriously. Yeah. yeah. It was a, it was a big deal for you. Yes. It was fascinating because it was competitive and 
also it was my own i had to i had to organize myself you know my mom was like if you want to do this then you need to organize that you know your transport your travel to the studio back and forth so i had to learn how to charm so i had to charm the mothers mm -hmm. you know at the dancing school you know if they oh do, would you mind you know dropping dropping me off at home and would you mind picking me up on the way you know with your daughter and da -da -da. Mm. <laughs> and then the process of competing itself was fascinating because you had to stand out so what what happens with disco dance that you get given a number that you get pinned onto your back and then about 20 30 kids get on the dance floor and the judges stand around and you have to they put the music on and you have to go you know, you have to find a way to stand out. So you have to try and think of things that is going to make is that going to make you stand out compared to to everybody else. One of my tricks was that once the music started, everybody would go really, really fast and run, and I would try and contrast that, and I would start moving slowly. Um, and then you had to make these thirty second solos. So if you got to the final, then you'd be like five of you. Then you had thirty seconds by yourself to show the judges what you could do. So that was very interesting because it was about grabbing attention and trying to show all your tricks in 30 seconds, which is very short. Yeah. So I think I learned a lot about grabbing an audience, about contrast, yeah. how to be different, how to stand out. Sowing the seeds for your later career as someone who would take all of those tools in a way and use them so. to shape your, your work. Yeah, I always question how healthy being in competitions for children. Uh -huh. But I'm quite grateful for it because I enjoyed it. I mean, I would get upset if I came second. <laughs> <laughs> Do you throw because, a paddy? Yeah, because if you win once, then you think, then you've got to hold, then you've got to try and mm. retain that mm -hmm. for, for the next one. Pressure. But I think also because my mom wasn't so bothered, I think that was quite healthy because there wasn't a pressure. It was just on myself. You know, so I'd come back and she'd go, so how did you do? And I'd be like, oh, I won. Or, so, you know, if I came second, she'd go, well, that's really great. Well done. Okay, good. Put your trophy on the mantelpiece. So in a way, I think it's also good to learn how to deal with um, success and failure at mm. a young age, and, but also to keep striving, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that really stands out for me is that your mother giving you that autonomy, really, over the decisions you were making, mm -hmm. There's something about it being your choice. And then I think that, for me, having researched you, carries on in, through your life. And we're going to come to it later, but your choice to stop performing yeah. and to become a choreographer. Mm -hmm. I think there was something, I, I, I'm getting the sense of this knowing, this sort of instinct that you have developed, you're having to make those choices for yourself. Yeah, exactly. I think it was about deciding for yourself and I guess some kind of perseverance. Mm. You know, there were several options, you know, it would go and work with your parents in the shop, which I found so boring. And I felt so bad about that because all the other kids would, especially Portuguese kids, would help their parents. But I just felt so awful because I would I would literally want to pull my hair out because I would get so bored. Mm. So I did try to do everything to busy myself with, with other things. I took care of things myself logistically, like, like transport and travel and stuff like that to get back and forth. It, it meant that my parents didn't have to drive around and... Uh, do all that stuff. I mean, my sister would sometimes, when she got older, she could drive. She would, she started helping out, but she was very supportive. Actually, she would come and watch me in competitions, and she was very, very proud. And then you you did train in classical and contemporary dance. What inspired that that kind of move? Like, how did you end up going to the school that you trained in in Johannesburg? Yeah, 
I so the high school I was I went to for two years was the was the the high school of our town, Germiston High, and it was quite a rough school. I mean, you would you would come out and sort of like run for the for the bus or run run you know to get in the car because there was just always a fight happening outside the school gates. So I was always petrified. On the same breath, actually, uh, I was quite lucky because because of the disco dancing, a lot of the girls who were doing disco dancing were in the high school. I was their, like, mascot. So I, I was sort of protected. So, of course, all the popular boys wanted to be the popular girls. Uh, you know, so I remember them coming up to me and saying, like, don't let anyone mess with you. And if anyone does, then let us know. So I kind of felt like I had a little bit of protection as well yeah. because I had, because I was friends with all the girls. And my friend was going to go to the Johannesburg Arpale Drama and Music School. And she was going to go study drama. So I was talking to her about it. And I said, oh, and she goes, oh, they do dance. They do ballet, Spanish and contemporary dance. And I was like, wow, this place sounds amazing. Like maybe I can go and audition. So I went along and like you said, I was, I had, I was quite loose. So all I did in the, you know, when I did the ballet bar was just try to get my legs really, really high. <laughs> really, really bad technique. Uh, and I remember like loads of other kids watching through the windows and seeing who's this person coming in later. But they took me because I think they obviously were desperate for boys or they, or they saw something. And uh, it was just, it was like I had arrived and met my, you know, met my people. It was just the best. It was like from... 1988 to 1990 and it was just uh and i'm still very very close with a lot of friends from school now from my from the RPLA drama music school and how did you find then being in this world of of form and technique yeah then starting to learn ballet and starting to really get down to the basics that was that was tough because i had a lot of catching up to do but what was what was the most wonderful thing was that the our contemporary dance teacher Sonia Mayo who was an amazing an amazing teacher started teaching us Cunningham technique and uh, Graham technique and her own technique and she was actually way ahead of everyone she's also a Pilates uh, instructor like this is like way back in the 80s mm. so we had the most amazing training from her and she was a fantastic choreographer so she made wonderful pieces and so that just opened up everything and I just totally idolized her i think that was like the biggest um, influence because even though the ballet was there i understood that uh that it was helpful mm. as a dancer but i really never aspired to be like a ballet prince or to get into a ballet company like the moment i started working with her and i discovered contemporary dance i was like this is exactly where i where i want to go she had left south africa and she actually she was the only white woman who'd ever danced at that time for elvin ailey this was before they'd they'd opened up to other performers of different races and she was one of the and i think there's a solo called cry he let her dance that solo and he says i'm i'm allowing you to dance a solo because you come from africa and you understand the hardships of a black woman mm. so she used to tell us these stories about being in america and traveling around the world and i was like oh that just sounds amazing and actually then i, I did try for the contemporary dance company in south africa and i didn't get in so it was a choice of that or go and dance at the the local casino resort called sun city which would be like putting on a g-string and doing that and I remember the audition for that was coming up and I thought, well, you know, I think I could probably get that. But at the same time, I was applying for, for London Contemporary Dance School. And then luckily, <laughs> it went in that direction. It was hard work, it was hard work to get all that organized because the same thing, like if I was going to do it, I had to do it on my own. My parents were like, if you want this, organize it. I don't know how I managed, but I managed. That's huge and so inspiring. Yeah. And did you have to 
travel all the way to London to audition and maybe get a possible no and then have to, or, or did you send uh, in a VHS video? VHS videos. Okay. So, yeah, so I went back to the school, filmed myself doing class with Sonia, the teacher, mm-hmm. and then filmed myself doing various solos and then sent all my, like, dance certificates and all those things and then got in. Had you ever been to London before or been? Yeah, so yeah. I'd been to London with the dance competitions. Okay. So I, I knew what it was. So I guess maybe that's why I wasn't so fearful and so afraid. Mm. The moment I stepped foot into London, I just f- immediately felt like this is going to be my home. Like I knew it. Yeah. You know? And so I was, I was very excited to, to come back and start a life here. And so how did you come across the work of New Adventures? So I just graduated and I was doing fringe work. Just, you know, like, you know, a few dancers, small scale work. But for some reason... Like no one came to see the show and we would be performing it. And there would be like, I remember performing somewhere and there were like two people in the audience and one of them was asleep and the director choreographer sitting at the back taking notes. And then we had like a note session after the show, which was also strange. And I was like, why are we even like, <laughs> there's no one, there's, we're not sharing this with anyone. Mm. At the same time, we were in Birmingham and Swan Lake was on in Birmingham. And I knew Emily Piercy from college because I was at college with her. And she kept saying, oh, you should come and, you know, you should come and audition for New Adventures. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I saw Swan Lake and that was it. I was like, the theater was full of people. There was the most gorgeous cast, these amazing performers. The audience were riveted. They were standing at the end. And I was like, that's worth it. I, I would love to be a part of that. I totally got it. I loved the piece. I loved the work. And uh, immediately auditioned and then got in for the West End run. Which wow, was, so it happened quickly. Yeah, it was like straight from that job to the next one, which was great. Amazing. But I was, also, <laughs> I was also a little bit surprised about the eight shows a week. For some reason, I didn't quite... <laughs> It didn't quite compute. Like, I think because you're just used to that contemporary dance thing of you do, you know, two or three shows and you have a few mm. shows and as you're touring. It's not, it's never eight shows a week, like a West End run. Like we did the the dress rehearsal and then it was going to be like the show in the evening or something. I was going, oh, we have to like put that makeup on, do that all over again. And then I was like, oh, then it's going to happen like tomorrow. And then there's a matinee day. And then it's, and I was like, okay. <laughs> But I think a lot of people don't realise that <laughs> I don't think it's they do such question a unique, it. Yeah, yeah, a unique way of touring yeah. that is so unusual. It's unlike any other contemporary yeah. dance or ballet it's not, company. Yeah, exactly. It is unusual, and you have to then f- you have to you know figure out your survival skills and mm-hmm. how to cope with that. Mm-hmm. Also, the company was still figuring out how to do West End Run because they hadn't really done that yet. So. I mean, people were dropping like flies at one point, like when we, a flu went around and people were just dro- And I think at one point there were like seven or eight swans on stage. Like it was so little. And I remember meant to be the 14. flu hitting me. Yeah, exactly. There was a <laughs> flu hit me like right in the middle of, of the dance. And I just remember feel, I remember going to Simon Lacey, the company manager, and just going, I think I feel ill. And, I'm tr- and you knew that you were trying to hold it on for anyone. He's like, listen, you just got to go home, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 changed changed so much now yeah, hasn't it it's, it's yeah, learned all of those lessons yeah it's amazing now yeah i remember watching nutcracker on vhs and for me one of my standout performances was was you before <laughs> i knew who you were before and you looked so different but i was like who is this person as the knickerbocker glory 
and and Nutcracker, as we're recording this, is going into its thirtieth year. Tour. Yes. So I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about being in that show, what it, that show meant to you. Actually, the role of the Knickerbocker was first danced by Anton uh, Scopicchio when Matt first created it. And actually, I've worked with Anton because Anton played Mr. Samsa in The Metamorphosis. So there's a lovely circular oh, that's thing him. going on. Yeah, that's Anton. Yeah. So Anton did it first and then Matt danced it. I think I've seen a picture of Matt doing it. So yeah. Matt danced it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I did it. And then obviously it's it's kept going. Mm. So yeah, so Matt and I both danced the same role. <laughs> Keeping it in the family. So yeah, so I think, also I think he, because he was so passionate about it, I think I got fantastic direction about the character, about being based on Terry Thomas. You Who's know, Terry Thomas? Terry Thomas is a British comedian who had the gap between his teeth oh, with yeah. a moustache. Mm-hmm. Again, I guess it was another way to try find, you know, because because it's those dances, are, all the different suites are happening for each section. You have to try and find a way, again, the same thing. How do I come on and do something to grab the audience? Also, I think that music is so beautiful. Mm. It's so trance-like and you can really try to cast a spell. So just, just trying to figure out what that was. And I think... I think one of the things that I really clicked into was the was the lipstick. Because <laughs> he had to smoke a cigarette. But I remember putting on the makeup and then putting on... And there was a cherry on the head. And I was like, I have to do something with the lips. And I found like a red, like a blood red lip gloss. Yeah, really shiny. And that just sort of gave me the confidence to really like... It almost started from the lips, <laughs> the whole thing. And it, everything oozed out from there. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think that the Nutcracker is much harder than... Swan Lake. I agree. And everyone goes, oh, Swan Lake must be exhausting. It's like, no, that's beautiful and freeing and you feel amazing afterwards. Nutcracker is exhausting. And when you wear that Knickerbocker wig, which is basically a rubber head, and I literally remember taking that wig off and literally steam coming off of my head because <laughs> it was so hot. Yeah, everyone like lost lost a lot of weight when, when we did it because yeah, you're just it's... sweating. Any other joyful memories of being in Nutcracker? <laughs> so many. I mean, it's, it's quite a show a, where you can be naughty, can't It's you? such a fun show. And, but actually, I think it's also exhausting. Like, when you do the first shows and you have to be an eight-year-old, totally fun, and you, you're totally in it, and you're like, this is fantastic. When you get to show 205 <laughs> mm-hmm. and you have to find your inner eight-year-old, that's really, really hard, you know, to be honest to the performance. I danced a lot with Belinda Chapman, and she would sometimes come in and she looked so exhausted and she'd say like, do something to me, you know, <laughs> slap me, hit me, get me into this. So I would often squeeze, you know, the muscle between your index finger and your thumb. And there's that muscle. And if you give that a hard squeeze, it kind of like invigorates your system. So that would be our little ritual, you know, and then to get her going, you know, mm. and then and then she'd be fine. And then it was a lot of fun. There's this beautiful quote that I found that really captures a moment for you, I think. Mm. Quite a significant moment, I I would believe, where you decided to transition and to stop being a performer. 
Mm-hmm. And you said that you were on stage and you felt this immense sense of satisfaction, like something just overwhelmed you and you thought, well, that's it. I don't feel like I need to do this anymore. Yeah, it was a real moment and it was in Nakraka and it was somewhere on tour. And I just, you know, there's those fantastic bows at the end, you know, and I used to come on and do the bow. And I remember doing the bow and I remember just coming up and looking at the audience and just feeling like exactly that, that immense satisfaction and just going, oh, I just, I just don't need, like, I'm, I'm ready to move on. It was something just kind of, that journey just sort of came to an end. And I remember going into the wings and looking back at everyone else in the cast and feeling different like feeling like a relative like I wasn't the family like I was a relative it was a strange feeling because what I really loved and I think what I learned so much later on as a choreographer was being a performer on stage and I think so much with Matthew's work because because the audiences are because the audiences love his work so much I really loved listening to the audiences but I also loved standing in the wings and watching my colleagues and being inspired by my colleagues and thinking Oh, what would you know? What would what sort of solo would you do, or what role would that that person's so good at that? You know, so my brain was ticking, and I think that just eventually kept going until I got to that point where the satisfaction as a performer had come to a lovely end. Were you scared to to make that change? Because I'm just thinking there might be people listening to this where I think finishing anything that you've loved so much and you've given so much to can be it can be very daunting to say goodbye to that. And I, I know Pina Bausch said uh, something around dancers die twice in their career, you know, once when they leave this world, but also when they quit being a dancer. Yeah. Did you feel any of that, any of that mourning? Was, were, you, were you scared? You know, no, because I was very lucky because I was already transitioning. I was already making work at the place and I'd already got also a job at one of my first jobs was at the, the National Theatre choreographing a play uh, called Mapamundi was a very easy transition because straight after that then I then I choreographed La Bawem at the Royal Albert Hall the transition was very smooth and easy so there wasn't a scary place of like okay now I've stopped and now I'm just going to wait for the phone to ring or I'm going to try and initiate something it was things were just happening very naturally so I think I felt very lucky and I felt more actually sort of more excited about what what it was going to be and I remember when I first started really choreographing I had this weird reaction when I would sort of watch my work because I would, I would sort of like giggle <laughs> whilst watching it. Um, and I think it was sort of like a nervous giggle. It was almost sort of like an uncontrollable <laughs> nervous giggle. Even if I was doing like something that was maybe had a tense atmosphere or something. And I guess it was so thrilling. It was a very uh, exciting time because it was finishing one thing, but then moving to the other thing. And there was, the, it felt like the road was was open and possible mm. which which i feel very grateful for mm. and it's also coming back to that thing we talked about at the beginning of the the knowing it feels like you just you just had this moment of knowing on stage yeah you just know it's just just a lovely like settled feeling of like that's that's done and it's interesting because now now working with dancers i can sometimes tell when people are almost there mm. and i go mm, you're maybe coming to that point because I absolutely love working with performers who want that applause. Like to me, that's the best performer, the, the, the performer who's hungry for that applause from the audience that need, you know what I mean? Because it's, it's for the audience, mm-hmm. not for like self gratification, but really about giving. Mm. It's that kind of performer who you feel like, you know, the moment there's an audience there, there's this amazing 
magic and you that they are hungry for that so we're going to dive into some of your work as a choreographer you tend to lean into surreal or challenging stories how do you choose the narratives that you want to tell where does that inspiration spark from it's interesting it's somehow things just come your way because what you're trying to do is you're trying to find a some kind of vehicle to get into to go on a journey so you're always trying to find something that has i guess a good structural arc mm-hmm. either it's the narrative or with the music you know or something that's challenging music because there's also sort of there's also abstract there's the land of abstract dance as well which i find fascinating but that in itself it also has a sort of a a narrative to the structure so but you're always trying to find something for me it's it's completely about the audience so I always when I'm always thinking of something I always imagine myself sitting in the seat and the curtain going up and the lights coming up and going okay here's the experience what's that going to be and it's because you, you can do anything any absolutely anything is possible mm. and w- what journey do you want to take the audiences on and I think obviously I'm, I'm very inspired by cinema and how and the journey that 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 a film can take you on or a fantastic play and that's not always easy finding the narratives but when you do find them and you find that they can work that there is a metaphorical language mm. in a way and that there's a space where you can take a side road and then come back to the main road. That's that's what I find really exciting. Mm. Then, then, I th- then I get very excited about what's possible. And I feel like you don't limit yourself. The work that I've watched of yours, I know that it's yours, but I feel like I'm often surprised at, at where it might go or, or what vehicle I might be in to get yeah. there. It just feels like you're you're not putting yourself in a in a in a box in that way you're open oh thank you i try i try to you know you also you're also trying to not repeat so you're trying to find different narratives that will take you on a different journey which will bring out different sides of you that you can serve the narrative in a different way one of the techniques that i've that i've enjoyed discovering is working very closely with composer frank moon who i work with so, okay, so sometimes if you're doing a narrative and there's existing music, that's something else because that's already set. But if you're starting on a new narrative, it means that you can control the timing. When when you're asking the, the dancer, the performer, to, to do a scene, with someone like Frank, we can create like a sound world where, because if, he if he's playing live, he can follow the performer. I enjoy that there is space to create a space for the performer to act but still keeping it musical mm. and that i think really evokes this this feeling of it being akin to a film in a way and the 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 music providing the soundtrack and and they work in symbiosis totally why is collaboration so important for you because obviously there's frank and jan, jan who's the yeah. designer that you work with yeah with those two, it's just such a lovely ongoing friendship as well as a lovely collaboration. And, and everybody can be so honest with each other. We try to keep challenging each other. I think it's important because you have to create space for each other to be able to respect what everybody's going to bring to the table. But also, like with Jan, I'm always amazed at where we arrive with the design. Like initially I go, oh, I'm imagining it's like this. And he goes, okay, okay. And then we, he'll start to do stuff. And then by the end of the process, it's like we're in another place. He'll take me on a journey and go, oh, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And I go, oh, that's exciting because choreographically, this it opens up that opportunity. Mm. 
And with Frank, he's so reactive and so in the moment. He just kind of goes he goes with the flow. I mean, just everything he does, I love because he just serves the the dance and he he gets he gets where it needs to to go or he likes to serve the moment and he finds sort of worlds within the worlds you know and there's lovely details that he that he'll start to pick up on and he'll pick up an instrument and something i would never think of i mean often i make noises to him and i go like oh it's like it's gonna we need something it's like and like and often he'll just go to the microphone and then make that sound and then put it in through some kind of system and before you know it it sounds exactly like (laughs) so he's bringing what's happening on inside your brain out into the world i think his music is accessible mm. he just finds a way to make it uh, melodic to, and also just to serve the moment but like for example when we did um the wind for the royal ballet because there's a silent film and he was like oh i don't quite know how to find a way into this musically so i said okay why don't you get your instruments and do a live improvisation to the film so we did that at the opera house and so we we showed the film to some people and Frank played like he kind of improvised on top of it. And then we recorded that. And then out of that, I was like, oh, that's that's beautiful what you did there. That's fantastic what you did there. So we had a few themes to then for him to start then building the score for the ballet. Mm. So it's always an interesting uh, process, but mm. he's just he's just a delight. And so is Jan. I mean, I just think they are geniuses and I, I love what they do. And it's a very lovely family. Yeah. Big love to them. Yeah. I, I am really passionate about inclusivity mm-hmm. and I know that you are too. And so I just wanted to touch base on your use in your in some of your productions of differently abled people and mm-hmm. bodies and how it represents that whole spectrum of society and challenges, I think, a lot of stereotypes of what exists in dance. Yeah. What, why? <laughs> Big question. Why? Well, I was very, I was very lucky early on to get a commission with Kanduko Dance Company was when Celeste was artistic director, Celeste Dandeka, who was just an amazing, an amazing person, and I loved the compassion in the room. I loved how normal it was, you know, because I, I didn't know what the experience was going to be like. You know, you, you, the day is normal. You start at ten, you finish at six. You know, you have a lunch break. And everybody just comes in and does their thing. And it didn't, it really didn't mean if someone was in a wheelchair or someone was was using a, a cane, it just didn't matter. You still, everybody just dealt with it. But if you go for lunch, you would, there would be this lovely compassion in the room. And then I then did a piece for a company, it's incredible, this company in Madeira called Dansando Como Diferenza, which means dancing with a difference. And they are an inclusive company of um, able and disabled dancers. And there was there were also some Down syndrome performers in that company. And I did production of Romeo and Juliet with them, which was <laughs> insane and a huge challenge. But we did it. And so when it came to doing my own work, and I did a piece called God's Garden, which we did at the Limbury, there was a performer in f- from that company, Madeira, who was blind there he had such an extraordinary presence i needed this father figure and i was doing this very portuguese piece and he's portuguese and it was kind of this prodigal son story and i thought it'd be beautiful if we could have him to come and play the father we, we managed to do it we got him over from madeira he stayed uh he stayed with us for like six weeks 
and he was uh, sort of attached to my shoulder as I was guiding him around everywhere. Then it really brought something to to the show, as well as working with the amazing Dinah Payne Myers, who at the time I think was in her seventies, and who was just and who played his mother. So he was the father of the prodigal son. So she played the grandmother, and we actually didn't realize. <laughs> At one point, because she was also, she's getting older, so she was also losing her sight a little bit. And I remember doing an improvisation where they had to try and find each other in the room. They literally couldn't because they got too far apart. But there was something so lovely about 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 their relationship as performers in the piece and then with, within the piece. So when I worked with the lovely Nadia Adami, who's now actually just taken over Access Dance, she was in the piece I did with Kanduko. So when we when I came to revive that piece called The Stepfather, I invited her back because she was so fantastic in the role. And then, then I put her into the other piece called Stepmother and we created a whole role for her. She's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, performer. I also don't think just for a lot of the performers who have a disability, I don't think your only option should be a company like Kanduko or Access. It should just be anywhere mm-hmm. unfortunately we're not there yet mm-hmm. you know uh and 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 i'm proud that we're one of the few companies that have, have that have done that onwards and forwards hopefully absolutely before we move on to your favorites obviously your partner is sir matthew Bourne. the sir yes, yes. the <laughs> sir um who's my boss and you know yes. such an icon um He's a choreographer. You're an incredibly successful choreographer in your own rights. With a very, you, you know, your career is very different. You have your own company, but you work freelance. Is living with him just a hive of creativity? Do you talk about each other's projects, or do you just keep it to yourself? What's it like? You know, there's definitely not competition, which is so lovely. And, and the actual fact is the opposite. You know, there's there's support and. Matthew is so supportive. If I'm talking about an idea, he often he he'll get very excited. He goes, "Oh, that's great! That sounds exciting!" You know, and we go through different processes. Sometimes he'll go, "Oh, I'm thinking of doing this," and or sometimes he'll be looking at different books, and then he'll say, "Oh, I'm reading I'm reading these Patrick Hamilton books. I'm thinking about it." And I was going, "What is that?" And then I'll be obsessed with something that I'm doing. And I recently. When he was preparing for the Midnight Bell, I was preparing for the Rite of Spring. So I was I was getting obsessed with the Rite of Spring and Stravinsky and, and ritual and all that kind of human sacrifice and all that stuff. And Matt was looking at like, you know, 1920s, 1930s, Soho, you know, and I, so, th- so it's happening in passing. And then he'd be like, oh, I'm thinking of a title. I'm not quite sure. And then like, you know, this, how about the, you know, so sometimes you, you'll like bounce off each other. And sometimes it's it's just quite a nice surprise. So I, I went to Moscow to work with this company for like two months and Matt started rehearsals. So when I came back, he'd pretty much finished making the piece. I got to Brighton to watch it and it was just a, a lovely treat. Mm. It was just, I was like, wow, you did all that. Fantastic. And it's such a beautiful work and it's so touching. So it's often supportive. And if there's any moments where we kind of go, oh, what about this or what about that? It's just more in a in a lovely, supportive way, not in a negative way. Mm. And if you listen to his episode on season one, he recalls this beautiful memory of dancing with you in lockdown in the kitchen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we dance it out. It's so cool. We do dance in the kitchen together. 
And sometimes with the dog in between us. <laughs> <laughs> so, Arthur. Yeah. We ask all of our guests to mm-hmm. tell us what the most impactful piece of dance that they've seen mm-hmm. is. And you chose Victor by Pina Bausch. Yes. Tell us why. It was my first Pina Bausch experience. I'd only like seen pictures and heard or maybe caught some bits on YouTube. But at that time, I think there wasn't much. I sat down and it was just everything I loved about life. It's such a beautiful piece, but there's such a wonderful metaphor because the set is basically it's basically an enormous grave. So there's this kind of pit and there's a, there's a performer on top kind of shoveling earth down into this pit and the performers are on stage and then and everything happens at one point there's a there's like an auction a full on auction with animals and dogs and it's it's incredible and then there's just the most beautiful dancers there's a particular dance where there's a performer and she's like she's sitting and she does this beautiful arm phrase and as she gets to the front of the stage someone pulls her back and then she starts again mm. and it's like this ongoing theme but they do the most gorgeous dance to Fred Astaire's putting on the Ritz uh, with bows in their hair this fantastic phrase and just the imagery and I think it is her very again also she was very influenced by Fellini as well so I think you can really see it in Victor uh, and there's this amazing moment when the the, the women are on swings like in, in beautiful dresses and they, they're just swinging back and forth and in the background, there's just a table full of um, old men. There must have been extras that they hire in each city. It's just like image after image. It's like turning a book and just getting these fantastic images. And I, I was just so just so inspired. And I love that. But can I have a second piece? Yeah, of course. Because it's the piece that just inspires me always. And that's William Forsyth's um, In the Middle, Somewhat Elevated, which is completely the opposite to something like Peter yeah. Bush. Yeah. Because it's all about breaking the rules of ballet, I guess, in terms of how one piece, uh, how one step follows another one. But it was seeing uh, a film of Sylvia Guillaume doing that. It's just the most satisfying, visceral. It's just, uh, I, I, I absolutely love that piece, and I, I just find it so iconic. And that's that's really what drove me. And I felt very lucky because I saw Sylvia Guillaume do that at the Royal Ballet. But it was a phenomenal, it's a theatrical piece. But, you know, Forsyth was so influenced by Balanchine. And so then you start researching and you go back. And then I discovered uh, Symphony in C, which is one of Balanchine's masterpieces. And I'm absolutely obsessed. I love that those two choices kind of encapsulate your really diverse career in a way. So we asked you to tell us what your favorite piece of music to dance to mm-hmm. is <laughs> and you chose Zobby Lamouche <laughs> by Les Négresses Vertes yes. the William Orbit remix, remix. Yeah. yeah we're going to listen to a little bit of it now okay I think this is now my new favorite song and i feel like if there were ever a song to like sum up other bits you found your own theme song i'd love that to be my theme why why this track mm, so i must have been about 17 or 18 
just like my last years of school, uh, we would go to this club called in Johannesburg called Idols. And I would go with my best friend who looks, she, like, we are the male-female version of each other. And we would love going to this, to this club. When this track came on, we would run to the dance floor and just, like, absolutely go for it. And there was a air vent. So they had this strong air vent. And somehow we would always manage to get ourselves in front of it. And I'd grown my hair long and she'd grown her hair long. And we were just like just absolutely going for it but i just remember like and just staring at each other and just smiling with this track with her hair blowing <laughs> such a lovely lovely memory and moment but the track itself is so it's just so wild and there's just fantastic rhythms in it so to kind of let yourself free and loose on the dance floor it's fantastic mm. i highly recommend it i think just put it on really loud put the lights off get a fan and send it from the fan and go for it. <laughs> if you're lucky enough to have air conditioning people, just crank it up. <laughs> crank it and up. This is this is pre when Beyonce made dancing in front of a fan a thing. So Way before that. It started with you. Way before you're that. You're the trendsetter. Yeah, we would, honestly, we would go nuts to that track. So after we're going to move on to our quick fire rounds. Okay. We start with word association. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to say the name of a Matthew Bourne show Mm -hmm. and you need to respond with the first word that comes into your head. Okay. You ready? Yes. Swan Lake. White makeup. Car man. Sex. Edward Scissorhands. Magic. Cinderella. Time. Nutcracker. Fun. Romeo and Juliet. Passion. If you could turn any story, film, or book into a Matthew Bourne production, what would you pick? Oh, that's so interesting. Because we're always saying, (laughs) oh, you should do this, you should do that. (laughs) I think he should do The Talented Mr. Ripley. He loves the film, but I think that could be an interesting... The style, the era... The relationships. Yeah, that kind of... I think in the style of um, Play Without Words and The Midnight Bell, which is like, he has like this... There's like another language, Mm. uh, which I really love. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I can really see that. I think it'd be quite good. Yeah. Arthur. Yeah. If you could pass on the love of dance Mm -hmm. to somebody or a group who may not have the chance to experience it, who would it be and why? Yeah, I think it would have to just be um, somewhere where they can't, they, like, I think, I, because I, maybe back to South Africa, you know, maybe to like the townships and to to the kids there who have so much passion. And I think to, to give that to them would be amazing. Mm. Arthur, last question. Mm-hmm. Why do we need dance? Why is it important? We need dance because it's a release in the human body that expresses something that can't be expressed through words and it's a connection to music and we need to feel it and we need to see it because it's in us. It's in all of us. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on Board to Dance. It's been so special to chat to you today and delve into your your history, your amazing history with dance. And thank you. Thank you Mr. Paul Smithhurst, lovely man. If you enjoyed this episode, then please go check out our other episodes, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Acast and YouTube. If you want to know more about new adventures, then check out the links in our show notes. I have been your host, Paul Smedhurst. This series has been produced by Hattie Moyer and our researcher is Stephen Daly. The theme music is by Terry Davies from the production Play Without Words. For more information about the additional music in this episode, please check the show notes. This has been Born to Dance, brought to you by New Adventures. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Bye for now. Bye for now.